Welcome. The Center for Teaching and Learning is showcasing faculty innovations in and out of the classroom, and creating a space for faculty to share ideas and learn from each other's experiences. This is one of a series of informal conversations where we ask a faculty member to describe and demonstrate their innovative practices. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Wenja Lee, Associate Professor in the Computer Science Department of the College of Engineering and Computing Sciences. Wenja started at New York Tech in fall 2014. Before joining New York Tech, he was a tenure-track assistant professor at Georgia Southern University, a public research university in the Georgia University system. Wenja teaches computer programming one and two, data structures, and algorithm concepts. Regularly uses the LMS, first Blackboard and now Canvas, to interact with his students between classes. I'm delighted to talk to Wenja today. I've had the pleasure of working with him several times as part of a course design institute and as part of New York Tech's project with Everspring to, to redesign high enrollment freshman facing courses. Wenja, welcome. Thank you, Fran, for the invitation. It's my pleasure to uh, be here and uh, trying to uh, share with everyone um, some of my findings. And also I'm willing to hear from you regarding some of your suggestions how can we advance the online teaching and learning? Great. Let's start with an easy one. Which course is your absolute favorite to teach and why? Okay, that's a very good question. So my answer is, um, I believe I really enjoy teaching and interacting with students um, for my um, programming one and programming two courses. Um, programming one, uh, which corresponds to CSCI 125 and programming two corresponds to CSCI 185. Those two courses are the um, first two um, Java courses that students will take in computer science curriculum, and that will get students prepared for more advanced um, computer science courses, such as data structures, algorithms, or even operating systems. So I believe uh, those two courses will build up a very solid foundation for students to better understand how Java or other programming languages, for example, can help them um, program their thoughts um, into some computer understandable format and trying to gain some critical thinking skills so that um, they can use um, programming languages as a tool uh, to help them uh, really build up their future career. I like teaching those introductory courses too. I like embedding what the students are gonna need for the subsequent courses. You teach right. some of the follow-on courses in the sequence, right? Right, I also taught um, data structures. Um, and uh, sometimes people joke that uh, programming three because um, data structures also use the uh, Java programming, but it's more advanced because um, now we will be looking at uh, using Java as a like tool to implement different types of data structures, for instance, trees or graphs or linked list and so on. Um, so that's why um, I feel like that um, teaching programming one and two will give students uh, some more understanding about uh, what is Java and how to use it in practice. And also my student comes from very diversified backgrounds. Some students um, didn't have any prior programming experience at all. And sometimes students uh, took AP courses in computer science. And many of those AP courses now in high school um, is based upon Java. So I, I do see that that's a very diversified student body uh, entering my classroom. Um, and I have to really face that challenge because you don't want to get those advanced students to be really disappointed because 
if you teach like all of those uh, like topics they have already learned, then they can easily feel like it's kind of too easy and uh, it, it's not challenging at all. But if I start from very advanced topics, then those without the corresponding background will feel like that um, they don't have the uh, prereq or the like previous knowledge to um, get started. So it's always a, really a balance trying to see how can we um, get both the um, non-AP like, non uh, prepared student and also the student with AP background um, to sit in the same classroom and both feel like that, that they learn something. So that's the challenging part. You've been working with Everspring to put programming one and two online or large parts of it online. Are you finding that you're adding resources for students at one end of the spectrum or another or resources for students at both ends? I, I believe so. So when I, when I interact with um, folks at Everspring, especially I want to thank uh, Amanda Olson and she's a very amazing uh, instructional designer and uh, she worked with me on both 125 and 185. And uh, I think uh, we are trying to um, like redesign the course um, to fit in the online and asynchronous learning environment. And also we are adding different resources for students to look offline. So it's not necessarily um, just all um, like original content that I used to teach um, when we are having the in-person meetings. So sometimes we can add additional video clips we can add additional links so that a student can get more in-depth um, view of uh, what's happening for each of those topics. So yeah, we, we are trying to make sure that uh, students from different background, technical background, uh, will all feel like that they're learning something new from the uh, programming courses. Great. Now, as you think back about your own education, is there a teacher or a student when you've been teaching that has changed how you approach teaching? Excellent question. So um, I think I, I like to mention two people, if you don't mind. Uh, one is my mother, because um, she was a um, very senior um, elementary school math teacher for over 40 years before her retirement. So um, actually she inspired me to become a teacher. And uh, um, I, I was in her class uh, when I was in elementary school back in China. So I, I think she really have a very excellent uh, teaching philosophy and uh, teaching like uh, skills. So um, I really enjoy learning like those um, elementary level math from her. Uh, that really inspired me to think about whether or not I want to pursue for a like um, faculty career after I got my PhD. Um, the second people I want to mention is actually uh, one of my colleagues uh, when I was um, doing my PhD at the University of Maryland. So in the last semester of my PhD, um, I got a very rare opportunity to teach one course independent, independently by myself, not as a TA, but as an instructor. And uh, um, that course was uh, introduction to programming, but we are using a different programming language, which was uh, JavaScript. And at that moment, I'm not really um, like, I haven't really used JavaScript that uh, widely, even if I know how to program in that language. Then I, I did have a more senior colleague uh, whose name was Tom Block. Uh, she did an excellent job uh, giving me some ideas about um, what, what is the general like teaching philosophy and the, the teaching like kind of um, skills uh, need, needed to be successful in a US university because um, I had some prior teaching experience uh, back in China. So when, when I was uh, like a master student in China, I taught um, undergraduate um, like courses 
there as a part-time lecturer. But then I know that there's some major difference or kind of like from the cultural perspective. For instance, the uh, university that's like classrooms in China, people, students generally don't really ask many questions during the lecture. Maybe they will ask questions at the end. So you will see that they will be uh, like aggregating near the professor when the class ends. But here in US, um, I in the first like first couple of classes that I teach independently, I noticed that students can easily um, raise hand whenever they have any question. So um, I think Don really gave me a lot of suggestions and useful tips um, to help me understand the like the campus culture here and how to be successful and be prepared to be a good teacher uh, in a US setting. So I want to mention those two people that really have a very uh, deep impact uh, into my uh, like teaching career. Thank you. So let's look back a little over a year ago in March, 2020. How did you feel when we had to move to remote learning? Okay, that question, um, yeah, it's really bring, bring me back. I'm trying to imagine what happens um, like uh, last March. But I still remember um, um, at the end, like near that transition period, um, I was already prepared to drive to uh, New York City campus because uh, people are saying that the public transportation may no longer be um, safe because of the COVID widespread. So I, I remember one morning when I when I trying to drive to school and trying to start like teaching the courses, I checked my email right before I left and I saw that um, President Foley mentioned that uh, we are now transitioning to the online like remote teaching mode. So I think it's a, it's a bit um, like a surprise, but I think obviously given the overall context, it's not surprising, but to, for that day, it's pretty surprising because I was prepared to drive my car and uh, trying to talk about like where I should park and all of those, because I, I used to be a commuter. So I take the Metro North to commute to the Grand Central and then take the subway. So I don't generally drive to the city in weekdays because I know it's very hectic. Uh, going through the Henry Hudson Parkway. Um, but I think um, students also get a little bit surprised because uh, they, they may not necessarily having the uh, correct mindset to uh, adapt to the fully um, like online teaching mode. Um, but I tried my best to give them as many instructions and support as I can. So um, I remember we have that em emergency like a Zoom uh, meetings um, set up and then I trying to engage them as much as I could for instance, when we had the uh, in-person teaching um, like mode, then I will have some in-class um, exercise so that I will put them into groups uh, and then I will give them some problems in Java to solve and then give them maybe 10, 15 minutes to solve the problem. And then at the end, we will have a aggregated discussion um, for the whole class. But then now we are in the online teaching mode. So it can no longer be practical because we are all behind the computer screens. Then uh, I, I trying to use a Zoom to set up the similar setting. So I will set up the breakout rooms and then uh, I will let them sign, sign to different rooms because I don't really like to like say, oh, student A and B go to this room or C and D go to the other room. I want them to volunteer to join different groups. to have uh, opportunity to work as a team trying to solve the problem in a collaborative setting. And then at the end, you go back to the, my, my, um, my earphone drops. Um, so at the end of the discussion, still go back to the main uh, Zoom session and then have a whole discussion altogether. But but I believe overall it's um, it's a successful experience, and I think students like the way that I get in, 
still engage them to the maximum extent that I could. Sounds like you did pretty well with it. Um, you. And your students, your students liked choosing their own breakout room. Yes, they, sometimes I think it's more like a combination. So some students um, will like to choose whom whom to work with, but in some scenarios, uh, students have difficulty locating a like a team. Then they may ask me for help, um, and I, then I will try my best to place them to some other um, teams that may have room or some other students who also have similar issues with finding a, finding a team. And then I, I always give them support. I will tell them that if they have any question or if they need any help uh, finding a team or forming a team, please let me know because I know that um, there may be not just one student, there may, may be multiple students uh, who have the similar issues. So then in that case, uh, if I know whoever needs help in trying to build a team for them so that they, they will feel like that they're not left behind. And do you have the, the impression that everyone participated or did it seem like a different dynamic than it was in the classroom? Um, I would say um, it could be, I, I think it's kind of similar. Even if we are having the in-person meetings, um, um, if I give them some in-class exercise like writing a Java program in a team setting, you know, there may be some students who kind of pretend that they are doing something. And even if they are in a team, uh, you know that it's not always that the case where everyone is contributing to the like problem solving process. So maybe one or two students may take the lead. They, were, they may be very active in having the discussion. And there may be one or two students who just sit on the corner and then just listen like very quietly. So it's kind of similar in the uh, like online teaching uh, mode um, because I know that some students uh, like to uh, really um, lead the discussion and trying to be very active, but some students uh, may not be that active. So I, I, I fully understand that it may be just because of their different characteristics. So um, I think my, my motivation here is to try to provoke them to uh, work with each other because um, it's also very beneficial in the future, um, thinking about their career. And in the software engineering companies, uh, it's very likely that they're not working alone, they're working in a team. So sooner or later, they have to get some skills to interact with people uh, in a technical setting, not really having casual chatting, but for the professional, like trying to build up some software project, they have to know how to split the work into different pieces and still collaborate uh, very effectively. So then in the summer, we found out that we were going to stay remote in the fall. Did you change anything else in the summer, between the summer and the spring? Because in the spring, as you said, it was very sudden. We're going remote, and it sounds like you adapted very smoothly. Um, right. Was there anything you saw in the spring that you wanted to change as you went to the fall semester? Definitely, because I, I believe that... Um, for spring, it's more like emergency transition, but for the fall, we are more prepared. So um, during the summer, uh, I want to thank uh, Dimbi Hashti because uh, he took the initiative to organize um, a small group of uh, CS and EC faculty members uh, to work on some online teaching. So we have, um, I think, um, a week, weekly or biweekly meetings last summer um, that we will do some um, like discussion and see where we are and trying to, and I also, I think Dimbi will provide us some resources uh, in terms of how to effectively 
um, teach online. So I think those are very helpful. So I want to thank DBHD for all of those very amazing efforts. Um, based upon that, I am trying to adapt some of the online teaching philosophy into the design of the uh, online version of the 185 because I taught 185 for last spring and also last fall and also this spring. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to um, not just um, do that emergency transition, like emergency online teaching, but trying to be more prepared so that I can give students more uh, resources they can read beforehand and something that they can review afterwards and so on. So I, I fully believe that um, with more preparation, uh, we can do better and better. How did the students respond in the fall compared to the spring? I believe they, they like the improved version of the online course better because um, I think uh, for the improved version, and also last of all, I, I, I get engaged with um, Amanda to develop the online version of the 185. So I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to utilize some of the materials that I developed on the fly into the, um, into the current semester, which was last fall's um, teaching experience. So I believe a student really like that, and uh, they feel like that it's not just um, another version of in-person teaching, because uh, now they feel like that it's something more fundamentally different and it's more adaptive to the online teaching setting. Thank you. Thank so you. sometimes in class, there's a moment where everything pulls together and it's almost magical because you and the students are all fully engaged. Can you tell us about one of those moments in your classes? Um, I think it's um, the, the, the moment that I, I kind of feel magical or feel enjoyable the most is when we have, um, uh, as I mentioned, when we have those uh, discussions. Because um, I think for the, um, for the online teaching, I think the most challenging part is how to make sure that students are fully engaged. Um, if I keep lecturing and lecturing, then I, I, I'm pretty sure that students may fall asleep more easily than in-person um, teaching. And for in-person teaching, I can, at least I can have some eye contact with them and trying to remind them, okay, so I, I can even move around in the classroom because um, I, I like to do that so that students feel like that I'm among them, not just further away from them. So I, I, I generally like to walk uh, within the uh, different areas of the classroom so that students feel like that I'm, I'm with them. But for the online teaching, I cannot walk next to them. So we, we are all behind the computer screens and uh, so it's very easy for students to get distracted. Sometimes I try, when I'm trying to ask for volunteers to answer some of my questions, then I didn't really get, um, um, always get response. So I feel like that sometimes uh, they, may, they may even be away from the computer system, uh, which I, I cannot tell because I, I understand that uh, they may not always have a webcam uh, with them. So it's not really uh, rational to assume so. Um, so I don't require them to turn on their webcam unless they want. And without webcam, then with everyone mute, then you don't know what's happening. So that's why I try to uh, design some of the um, um, in-class discussion so that uh, I set aside some period of time, maybe let's say 15 minutes or 20 minutes, um, especially for my uh, programming classes, because I believe programming is really about exercise. If they don't do exercise, then essentially they don't learn effectively. So um, with all of those programming classes one and two, I'm trying to set aside some time each class 
um, having some topic that I selected before, and which is direct reflection of what I teach uh, in the um, in in the same class in the same meeting, and then I will give them some chance to um, either do it uh, so solely like by themselves or form a team, depending on the complexity of the uh, problem itself. Then I give them some time and also the breakout rooms, and then uh, stu when, whenever students have any question, uh, they can they can request for help. I don't know if you noticed that, but I, I, I regularly get pulled into one room. So let's say student X from room Y re request your help. Then I will join the class, I will join that uh, specific breakout rooms and uh, um, interact with them, having some discussion with them. And also I allow them to share the screen. So if they use uh, any software to program like uh, one of the Java IDEs, then they can share with me what they have so far. Then I will point out uh, which part they did right, which part they didn't. And I can even request for remote access, which means I can try to type something on their end. And then I think this is very effective because uh, students will know exactly which piece they, they are missing so that they, they will make sure that they know that uh, next time. And then at the end, um, everyone will go back to the main room session. Um, and then I will ask if there's, there's any volunteer who is willing to share his or her program or their program uh, to the whole class. And generally I'm pretty successful in getting those volunteers. Um, and then I will make some comments based upon what they wrote, which part again, um, like they did well, which part they may need more, more attention. I feel like that by all, all of those uh, multiple rounds of interactions, uh, students will have a deeper understanding about uh, what's happening in class and like what I just taught. Um, and uh, um, that will become very effective. That, that's the moment I feel like the magical is, magic is happening. <laughs> Thank you. So Yusui is asking a question in the chat. Um, he teaches physics, as you know, and, and the two disciplines are similar in that they both require a lot of hands-on experience. And so he's asking about um, what you spoke about earlier. You've got students who have a lot of experience, but you also have students without experience. Um, how do you get them to be really truly actively engaged in the discussion? Do you find that this method of groups and going into the breakout rooms, do your less prepared students engage as much as the more prepared students do? That's a very good question. Thank you, Yusui, for pointing that out. Um, I think um, one thing that I, I, I feel it's very effective is trying to design the, um, the dis discussion questions in layers, like in different levels. Uh, you may you may design the question like in three levels. Like um, one is kind of pretty easy to solve. The second level maybe needs some like thoughts. The third level is very challenging. So depending on the groups, also depending on like how much time you have, I may give them one, two, or even all three questions to think about. So that um, if the student is kind of a, a newcomer, they 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 don't have any prior experience yet. Maybe they will spend most of the time in solving the first problem, which is okay. But if the student is more prepared, they have more prior knowledge, then they may go into problem number two or even problem number three. So in that case, uh, they always feel like that they are doing something, they are kind of technically challenging themselves um, and uh, they, they will not feel like that. They kind of like, if, if I only have one version of the problem, then the most uh, like advanced students, they may feel like, okay, I can solve it in a couple of minutes, then I will just, uh, get distracted, maybe play some video game or watch, like looking at my phone. 
and uh, they may no longer be like really engaged into this um, process. So that's one thing I found maybe effective. Very nice. Yusui, you're welcome to jump in if you'd like. And I see Luba has a question. Yes, at first, um, I remember my first master's was in computer science, and I have no idea how it's possible to have a classes on, on Zoom right now, based on my experience. But my question is, right now I have a four-hour class on Zoom, and I'm trying to engage my students as much as I can, including video discussions, uh, assignments, breaking rooms, discussions after that, uh, exchanging opinions. And sometimes I give them extra time in break rooms just to communicate among themselves because students always complain they are missing this communication with their classmates. So I always give them five, 10 minutes extra. But also what, according to your experience, um, where is this, um, what is the difference between make them to be fully engaged in the class and maybe uh, to be too active to make them to actually engage in the class? I think that's a very interesting question. Uh, thank you for that question. Um, I think one thing that I, I, I noticed is that uh, currently we are, we are interacting with the new, newer generation of um, like college students. And especially in computer science, many of them are having like their like extracurriculum hobbies and they have their own like interests, uh, not necessarily in, within the CS curriculum. Um, and I encourage them to use some communication tools um, after class so that they can always stay connected. For example, one, one software is called Discord, D-I-S-C-O-R-D. So I know many students know how to set up a Discord server. I always encourage my students to set up one um, and share that link with all the classmates so that they can communicate on Discord and uh, exchange some ideas and so on. And the other, the other software, the other app, I, I also recommend them to use is called Slack. I think many of you may have heard about it. So Slack is also another effective communication tool so that uh, they can talk offline. Um, it's required because one, my other class that I regularly teaching, I have a semester long project that I um, in, anticipate them to work as a team. So it's always important for them to find ways to communicate with each other, especially within the same team. Uh, if we have the in-person classes, it may not be a big issue because they meet each other on a weekly basis so they can find time to go, let's say, go to the library. Uh, there's a self-study room, um, and they can reserve those rooms and have more in-depth discussion. But now it's online, so they no longer have access. So it's better for them to really have some um, side channels, like additional channels to communicate rather than just uh, the in-class time. So that's why I encourage them to use those additional uh, communication tools to get to know each other and also um, talk to each other on a regular basis after class. I hope this answers your question. Yes, absolutely, thank you. Thank you. And so how do you compare, do you find the students um, prefer Slack and Discord to Canvas? Um, 
to be honest, I haven't been using the canvas communication like the. I don't know if they have uh, embedded uh, instant messaging tool. Um, at least I'm not aware of that. Um, so that's why I feel like that um, sometimes they need to get some instant response. Let's say, oh, I, I met this problem during developing this software. Like, let's say if my other class have a semester long project, they may, they may need to get some uh, immediate response within the team. So I think it's better if they have some instant messaging tools um, so that they can stay connected whenever they, they want. And uh, that, that's why I suggest to have those additional tools so that they can really get um, like discussion uh, whenever they need. Makes perfect sense. So as we try to, as we begin to move into a post COVID world, um, we're looking at going back to campus as much as we can in the, in the fall, this is spring, in the fall. Um, which of your innovations do you think you will bring back to your classroom-based courses? How are you going to transform your teaching and learning as a result of this pandemic? Um, I think that's a very good question. Um, um, even if we are, uh, we are gradually stepping to the post-pandemic era, I believe, uh, the COVID may may still with us um, like for some time. It may not disappear magically. And I've even heard that it may be more like a super flu so that it will come back every year. We need to get a vaccination. And again, I'm not a health scientist, so I really cannot uh, comment on that. But my point is that we need to still be prepared just in case if there's any outbreak of uh, another wave or another like a var variation and things like that. Uh, we have to be prepared so that whenever necessary, we have to go back to the uh, hybrid or even online teaching mode. Um, so I believe it's very important that uh, we have the, like the Zoom, uh, sorry, the Canvas courses developed on a hybrid mode, which means they have the synchronous um, component and also a synchronous component so that uh, whenever necessary, we can utilize the asynchronous mode. But when we have a chance to uh, meet in person, um, I think that will also be important because I think stu many students may prefer to see the real person, like the real professor. They feel like that they may learn better. Um, I'm, I'm not against that. I think it's, it makes perfect sense. So uh, we want to get prepared in both sense. So both asynchronous and synchronous. And one specific um, aspect of the online teaching that I feel very useful, maybe the online discussion, because I believe um, the student, uh, even if they interact in class, it may be still a good idea for them to interact online. So um, I'm working with Amanda on like a 125 programming one uh, online course development. So we are having some online um, discussion topics for many of the modules that I'm developing so that students may still get stay connected even if they go back to home and uh, uh, they open the Canvas platform, they can still interact with um, other students and also with me and TA uh, in another way. So I believe this online discussion may be uh, another way to further engage students into this teaching and learning process. I think that's terrific because there's also the, the issue that some students don't wanna speak in class. Right. or some students take longer to gather their thoughts and they might not be able to participate in class as as thoroughly as they would if they can think about it for a couple of hours and then respond. So you're giving them the opportunity to extend the learning out of class time. Right. And the other thing I want to mention is that um, um, Amanda gave, and also Beatrice gave me very good suggestion. 
for those online discussion, uh, in addition to the textual input, like textual response, they even recommend me to um, think about uh, having another form of response, which is uh, video clips, because they feel like that, um, according to their experience, some students may prefer to record a video and share their thoughts rather than like writing up some um, paragraphs. So I think that's a terrific idea so that uh, we can have this diversity if they want to um, type something in, uh, in textual uh, input, it's fine. If they want to record a video, it should, it should also be good. Great. Um, I always try to wrap up these conversations by asking for a recommendation. Is there a particular app or technology that you use that makes your teaching better, makes your students learning better, streamlines your work? Um, definitely. I believe um, since now we are um, in the online teaching mode, so um, we cannot assume that the students will always have access to the um, like the um, computer system. Sometimes they're joining from their phone, they're joining from their tablet, uh, which means they may not have all the necessary software uh, for programming because for the programming, uh, we generally need to install like a Java IDE such as Eclipse or IntelliJ, uh, but they may not be available for different platforms. And so in that case, I suggest students to look into the online Java IDEs, which means they just need to go to a website or a bunch of different websites and they can type in their Java programs there, they can get it compiled and then execute it. So I believe this technology will um, make it adaptive to different uh, situations uh, in, in which all the students could learn equally in that case, because um, they, they may not have the necessary software support uh, in some cases, but we still want them to learn. So this online uh, Java IDEs will uh, fit the need perfectly in this sense. Terrific, thank you. Um... Wenja, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing your practice. It's my great pleasure. I think I, I also enjoy this conversation very well, and I, um, I hope uh, we have more interactions um, definitely in the future. But I know we, we already have many interactions before, and I think you, are, you, you did a so amazing job in uh, guiding me throughout my uh, tenure at uh, New York Tech. Thank you. Um, We've been speaking today with Dr. Wenja Lee, Associate Professor in Computer Sciences in the College of Engineering and Computer Sciences as part of the Great Teaching Series. This conversation's been recorded and will be available on the Center for Teaching and Learning webpage, nyit.edu slash ctl. Um, if you'd like to be featured in our Great Teaching Series, please email the Center for Teaching and Learning at ctl at nyit.edu, or better yet, fill out the form that Noreen has put in the chat. It's at bit.ly slash great dash teaching. Thank you so much. Thank you, Fran. Thank you, um, Noreen. And thank you, Yusui and uh, uh, Lubov for joining me. And I think we have a very pleasant um, discussion today. Thank you all.